0: Welcome to the Wolf Connection Podcast. I'm your host, John Kalfa. Let's talk about some wolves. Joining Steven and myself from Madison, Wisconsin. She is a doctorate, uh, a PhD in wildlife ecology, infectious diseases. I think I got it all right. Ellen will correct me if I did not, but Ellen Brendel joining us. How are you, Ellen? How's everything going in Wisconsin?
1: Yeah, doing pretty well over here. It's starting to look like spring. So um, yeah, I'm excited to be here with you guys today.
0: Yeah, we we were talking just before we started, uh, all three of us, that you were really the next podcast we needed to have because we spoke with Carter Niemeyer, we spoke with Mike Phillips, and a lot of it was about, we were touching sort of on the periphery of chronic wasting disease and some of these other diseases that could be starting to infect uh, infect, uh, the ungulate populations moving towards. Yellowstone, and so you clearly are the expert in this area. Uh, Just give everybody a little bit of background about how you got started. Uh, I know you you graduated from the University of Montana Wildlife Biology, and then Infectious Diseases, uh, your PhD in Penn State. So, how did you get involved uh, working in those areas?
1: Yeah, so um, I really didn't know much about wildlife, um, anything before I started my my undergrad and I had applied to the university of Montana. I'm originally from Michigan. I had applied there a little bit on a whim. Um, and I went out for a visit and it was really the first time I had seen mountains. Um, and I was like, that's it. I'm done. I'm sold. This is where I'm going. I didn't visit anywhere else (laughs) after that. And, uh, yeah, so I went into wildlife biology there. I had, I'd been interested in animals. I'd thought about being a vet. Um, But when I got to Montana, I realized there was this whole massive field of study of wildlife. And I did not know that that had existed. So that is the path I went down. Um, I started doing field research my freshman year, uh, actually that winter. So pretty much right off the bat. And I have been hooked ever since. So my undergraduate, I really just went into wildlife biology. There was no focus on infectious diseases, Um, I was on field projects ranging from snowshoe hare, phenotypic mismatch with their environment and climate change, to um, grizzly bear, black bear co-occurrence, to um, wolves. So I I kind of had this broad range of of topics I had studied um, in the field in my undergrad. And so I started looking at infectious diseases really when I started looking at PhDs and Um, I I ended up doing my PhD under Dr. Peter Hudson at Penn State University, and he's an infectious disease ecologist. And I started reading some of his work um, as I was getting interested in in this potential program I was going to be joining, and it just really fascinated me. Um, Infectious diseases are like systems within systems. So you have the whole system of the pathogen or the parasite, as well as the host, and then environment predator prey, all these other things. So it gets very complicating and very intriguing uh, very quickly. So yeah, I've only really been an infectious disease ecologist for the past five or so years. Um, but it's been awesome. super interesting stuff.
0: I mean, you only say five or six years that seems like a lifetime though for any amount of study, which is it's great that you're in this. And I mean we'll we'll, we'll kind of jump right in because I, I was reading I read, your uh, your chapter, which I I'm going to dub it your chapter in the uh, if anybody goes out and wants a book to read about wolves, Yellowstone wolves, science and discovery in the world's first national park, definitely go on Amazon, look for it. It's edited by Doug Smith, Daniel Staler, and Daniel McNulty. Uh, so chapter nine is your chapter where you really dive into and others, of course, other colleagues of yours but where you discuss uh, distemper, parvovirus, um, adenovirus, I think is how you say it. Please correct me if I'm wrong, mange and herpes. So there's a, a lot of things that you discuss in that chapter. So from what I was reading in there, the infectious disease study of the wolves, specifically in Yellowstone, didn't start until 2005. So can you give people a little bit of background of the wolves when they first got there? There were obviously they were, I believe they were vaccinated. So they were not immune, but there were no viruses or any sort of pathogens in the wolves that were transported to Yellowstone. And then these diseases started cropping up as they got into the environment, correct?
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah. So what happened was when the wolves were reintroduced, they were, they were vaccinated, they were given, given antiparasitics. Um, basically the vets and the biologists wanted to make the wolves as healthy as possible prior to reintroduction, right? To give those wolves the best shot of surviving and making the reintroduction successful. Um, and so they gave them a whole suite of vaccines. If, I just like to tell people it's basically what you'd give your dog. You know, when you get a dog, when you adopt it, it gets this whole suite of, of vaccinations. It's essentially the same package that you're giving these, these wild animals um, before the reintroduction. And so, The wolves were put in Yellowstone um, and a lot of these pathogens are multi-host, the ones that you just mentioned. And so they were probably existing in the environment previous to wolf reintroduction um, through other species, other canids like like coyotes, foxes, um, and some of them like distemper are carried also by by bears, by weasels, by cougars, um, and then domestic dogs, of course, which are really important reservoir or main host for a lot of pathogens um, and so the wolves were put back and over time once I started reproducing and had these individuals that are no longer immune um, then the wolves start to pick up infections and parasites pathogens bacteria um, all sorts of things and this is natural this is a natural process right these are things that exist in nature um, Uh, Except for mange, which we can come back to maybe in a little bit. But um, what really happened in 2005 was there was a canine distemper outbreak, and um, pups were dying in plain sight of the public and of people that work for the Wolf Project. And people just said, What is going on? And that is when um, Emily Allenberg, who was kind of my predecessor in this, um, she had the same PhD advisor, Peter Hudson they decided to start taking a look at this um, with Dave Meech and Doug Smith and and a lot of these other people that work there. Um, And so 2005 is when the disease project really took off. But luckily, we had observations and samples from so many wolves dating all the way back to reintroduction. So we were able to basically trace the invasion of these different pathogens through time from reintroduction to present.
2: So how... so? So if the animal if animals are being reintroduced on the landscape and they have an immunity wouldn't that generally be passed down through generations or is it or is it because it wasn't a, a naturally occurring immunity that it didn't or how many generations is it taking from that first generation of Im, uh, immune animals to to have pups that are no longer immune
1: So let's think about it um in terms of childhood vaccinations so every baby for the most part in the US has to get taken in and get their measles, mumps, rubella, polio, et cetera, et cetera, this whole suite of vaccinations as babies, right? Um, and so they grow up into adults. If it's a female, you know, could have a baby and their babies then have to go back and get vaccinated again, right? So that immunity does not last. Um, and it's it's the same here. Um, immunity does not last. So any any pup that is born is born susceptible, and there are chances that there are some pathogens that um, are transmitted, um, I'm sorry, antibodies that are transmitted through um, milk, for example, um, in which case a pup that is um, that is drinking its mom's milk could get antibodies that way and have this short-term immunity that typically wanes very quickly, like within the first few weeks or months of life. Um, but in general, let's just assume that all individuals that are born are completely susceptible to getting that infection, even if the, the mother was immune. Um, there are some cases, not maybe to get maybe not to get too detailed, but um, there are some cases where genetic resistance might form to certain types of infections. Um, and so over over a long period of time, you might have a host population that becomes more resistant. Um, but that is not the same as immune. So yeah, hopefully that answers that question.
0: Do you see or were there any anything that you guys picked up with the difference between the, the gray wolf and sort of the 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 black phase? Cause I know were there any differences like you we were just talking about in terms of immunity or sort of being able to fend off certain diseases and pathogens? Were there was there any difference? In the wolves there that you could see because I know they interbreed uh, to try and sort of you know have the best chance of survival. So is there any difference between sort of the I guess the gray wolf and sort of the black phase wolves that that sort of cohabitate and co-populate?
1: so this is um this is a super detailed question. so um I will maybe we can just like break it down in, into bits <laughs> um at first. Sure. Um, but let me start off by saying that. Um, a lot of these pathogens that we've discussed, distemper, um, distemper comes in in waves, so it's a little bit different, but adenovirus, parvovirus, herpes virus, they are super prevalent. So most wolves are exposed to these pathogens throughout their life um, and within the first couple of years of life even. And so some of these pathogens, um, we expect, in fact, everybody, we can't really tease apart the dynamics because everybody that we test, all the wolves we test, are positive, or almost all of them. So it's, it's really hard to get at dynamics of things like adenovirus um, and parvovirus in, in Yellowstone um, and herpes virus. Parvovirus has some different variable dynamics in other systems, but in Yellowstone, basically all the wolves are exposed um, within the first few weeks of life, we even expect. So distemper is a little bit different, and so is mange. Um, distemper comes in in these waves, so that's called um, an epizootic Um, or an epidemic type of virus. And so what happens is it'll come in carried by many of these hosts that I've discussed, um, basically all the carnivores, wolves, coyotes, bears, uh, cougars, weasels, and it will cause big outbreaks that go through the whole population. And it causes really high mortality in pups especially, but also maybe sick or weak adults as well. Um, And then mange is a chronic Pathogen. So it's it's actually a parasite, it's an ectoparasite, it's a mite, right? So that causes chronic infections. So individuals might be infected for months, um, for years, might clear it, might not, might not clear it, might die because of the infection. So for us, distemper and mange have really been the pathogens that we've then been the most interested in looking at because they have these variable dynamics. So I'll circle back around now to the coat color question. So because distemper is, is a virus that causes high mortality, it can kill up to 80% of pups born in a year. It can oh. wipe out entire, it can, yeah, it can wipe out entire litters. Um, yeah. And luckily wolves, wolves are, are great at reproducing. And so the, the population typically bounces back within a year or two, but um, you can have pup production be, you know, in that range um, in years of canine distemper outbreaks. So for us, this is a really interesting pathogen because um, it's exerting, we think that it could exert something like a selection pressure, right? If you are something that kills so many of your hosts, what is special about those ones that are surviving? Is there something special about, about those pups that are surviving that infection? So um, for coat color, what's interesting here is that in Yellowstone um, and in North America in general, we have these two phenotypes. We have a gray wolf and we have a black wolf. It's the same wolf. Um, They're called gray wolf, which is confusing for a lot of people, right? That's a scientific name is gray wolf, but they can be gray in color or black in color. And the black color actually comes from domestic dogs. Yeah. And so a few thousand years ago, maybe 7,000 years ago, wolves and domestic dogs that were black bred somewhere up in the Yukon region, it's suspected. And that's how we get the black phenotype. Um, they bred and it was successful. And we saw what's called a selective sweep, meaning that this black phenotype is now super prevalent, mostly in the Western um, part of North America where wolves exist. So it's ongoing research, um, this question about what is the interaction with disease and with, uh, with pathogen pressure, in particular canine distemper virus. Um, it's ongoing research. I want to just say people's names really quickly. So with um, Tim Coulson, um, who is based out of Oxford, and um, Sarah Cubains, there's a whole long list of people, but um, Peter Hudson, Doug Smith, Dan Staler, um, Paul Cross from USGS. Um, so this whole team of people, we've been thinking about this for a while now, because what's interesting about this, the black wolves is that the, that black gene is what's called a beta-defensin gene. And so it's linked to immunity. And, um, so the thought is that potentially with this pathogen that exerts this, this high amount of virulence, we call it. So basically mortality, um that this, the black wolves might have higher survival because they have this special immune gene, basically. So um, that is the thought in general. We do know that black wolves survive better in years of canine distemper outbreaks. We know that black wolves and um, gray wolves, I want to say, I guess I should say Black wolves that are heterozygous. I don't know how much detail we want to get into here. <laughs> um, but there, there are some differences in black wolves. So so black wolves that um, have a certain form of of the black allele do survive better. And
2: mm-hmm.
1: maybe I'll leave it at that. It's an ongoing area
2: <laughs> so, of research. So I guess this is an extension of my last question. Um, and, and so my, my understanding of the basic concept of evolution is that those that survive because of their fitness level or because of their resistance to the current uh, diseases that are attacking their peers, they breed and evolution selects for those genes that are most likely to help the future offspring survive. But in this case, if I'm hearing it right, even a pair of black wolves can have a litter and their resistance gene isn't strengthening all of their offspring, only the pups with a black coat.
1: So, um, we have to do some simple genetics equations basically to, to describe this, but um, the gray, the gray wolf is the dominant gene. So Mm -hmm. um, if a black and a gray are to mate, then um, the gray is going to be what's dominant in, in that pairing of the alleles. So um, if, if two blacks mate, Mm-hmm. Um you're going to get you're going to get black wolves um but if you have a gray and a black you could have a mix. Mm-hmm. So and if you have two grays you're only going to get grays. Right? So um that is kind of the idea. Actually two two blacks that are both heterozygous could also produce a gray. So yep. we have to there are some equations that that go into this. Um but to answer your question, yes, to have to have this gene, you have to be black presenting. So you have to have the black phenotype. Um, and specifically you have to have a heterozygote, which means you have one dominant and one recessive allele. Um, because if you have two recessives, which are, it's a black homozygote, um, you actually have very, very low survival, like barely, Hmm. barely even survive out of den emergence.
2: I see. So, so why isn't that, why isn't that simply defined as like the more genetic diversity, the higher the resistance, or is there something more complicated happening?
1: No, so actually this is what's called um, the heterozygote advantage. It is a coined term, the heterozygote advantage. And what it is, it is actually a reason to maintain genetic diversity because you have to have a mix of a dominant and a recessive allele. So if everyone is dominant, if everyone is recessive, you have none of that variation. And Mm. so if you were to have an infection come in, it could potentially wipe out um, everybody if they're all the same.
2: Yikes. Wow. Yeah. Okay, that makes
0: sense. <laughs> I think you answered it in full. That was great. Yes. Just, just go through, <laughs> Ellen, just tell everybody, what are the what are the effects of distemper? So what was the, why is there such a high mort- uh, mortality rate? What what are the, the symptoms of distemper and how can it run through a, a canine population or a carnivore population so quickly?
1: Yeah, so uh, that was more genetics than I was expecting to answer from you guys. So <laughs> sorry if that was a little bit wordy. I wasn't.
2: No, no, it was great. I mean, that's what this podcast is it's supposed to be wordy. Yeah.
1: Um, so, distemper is in is in the measles family, um, and so human measles, I'm sure we all know, um, causes really high mortality. It mostly affects children, and so it's in that same that same family. And this same family, the measles family, actually has had quite a few viruses that have been pretty horrible um, for for wildlife. Um, one has been rinderpest. If you've ever heard of that, and so distemper is in is in the same grouping. So. What happens is um, quite quickly, within the first few weeks or months of life, that's when we typically see outbreaks in the summer. And the thought is, because that's when there are all these susceptible individuals on the landscape, all of these these young animals from all those species I mentioned that could be hosts. They're typically being born in the summer. So that's when we typically see these these outbreaks. And um, the pups will get really lethargic um, and, The symptoms at the end of life can be pretty bad. Um, So in the beginning, they'll be lethargic. They won't be eating. They'll become emaciated. But towards the end, it starts to affect the central nervous system. And you'll see muscle tremors and seizures. Um, It's it's pretty horrible.
2: Mm.
1: And so for pups, we normally don't actually see this because it happens in the den or it's hard to get really great visuals of pups. Um, right at that time of den emergence. So that's why this 2005 outbreak was interesting and special in that way and kind of was a catalyst for this research. Um, But there was another case that was pretty high profile in terms of us watching the symptoms of distemper play out, which was 949M, who was the alpha male of the Lamar Canyon Pack. He actually died in August 2017 when there was another distemper outbreak. He also had mange, pretty severe mange, prior to getting distemper, um, which is probably why, why he ended up dying of distempers, because he was already um, immunocompromised. Yeah. But yeah. so what happens is towards the end of death, um, animals typically go, start going towards water um, yeah. because they are dehydrated and emaciated. And so he was away from his pack and we just... Crowds watched him for a couple of days, just twitching and trying to eat and he couldn't eat. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, it was pretty bad. So that's the only adult that we've ever witnessed in the park dying of distemper. So otherwise, we honestly don't really see a lot. We end up just seeing no pups. We end up just seeing um, females going in and having denning behavior and packs um, going into the den, acting as if there are pups. And then it either just completely stops and we know that they've lost their litter Or it's kind of strange behavior. We can't really tell what's going on for a few weeks. And then we see the pack all running together, um, you know, towards the end of summer without any pups. And we know that they've lost their litter. So if we are not um, seeing anything, but we end up not seeing something, right, not seeing these pups, that's evidence that something has happened in the dens um, or something we didn't witness where the pups didn't survive. And so that's when we'll do serology. And so during captures, um, which are in the winter, so pops will be at least about eight months of age, um, we'll capture them and then we'll take their blood and we'll spin it out to get serum and we'll test that serum for antibodies. Um, and the antibodies tell us whether or not that wolf has mounted an immune response, right? So if you catch a wolf that's eight months old and it has antibodies for canine distemper, then you know it was exposed within the last eight months, right? <laughs> and we know that they're mostly exposed in the summer, so we can then infer that there was exposure or an outbreak that that summer of that calendar year. So we kind of do this backtracking to figure out exactly what the dynamics were.
2: What what's the indication of an outbreak versus you know business as usual, or how how early or late in the process are biologists kind of cluing in? on an outbreak event. And is is there a moment that this happens? Like, is there, are there, are there multiple events that are occurring in the environment or the climate that causes this, or is it purely just uh, the amount of susceptible animals at the time?
1: Yeah. So, um, we typically will not know that it is an outbreak until towards the end of the summer. Um, when we start to see, like I said, packs no longer have exhibiting denning behavior, Um, and we will be wondering what, what has happened there. Um, this gets muddled when we have females that aren't collared that are um, reproducing and we can't really track their behavior and we don't really know what they're doing. So there are chances, um, there is a chance that we miss some of these dynamics because it is, a lot of it is looking in the past. Um, but I would say once we start seeing packs moving without their pups, um, you know, in, in, the fall. Then we definitely suspect something has happened, or even earlier. If if a pack loses their pups, you know, in June, they will continue on with life. They're not going to sit around at the den with with pups that haven't survived, and um, you know, they might even um, there's they might consume them again after they've died. Those females that have lost all those resources. Um, yeah, it's it's unclear the mysteries of what exactly happens in the den. So we'll start to suspect something towards probably the end of summer and then like I said, um we won't know until we take samples from wolves the next winter and we test those samples.
0: So when you when you're doing these studies, I was reading to in your chapter or and some of the other stuff that you've had published, a lot of this happens it seems on the northern range of the park where these where a lot of these pathogens or the, or these diseases are are more prevalent, whereas more towards the interior of the park, there's not so much of this occurring. Is there a specific reason for that or anything that you guys have found when you've been doing your studies?
1: Yeah. So, um, the first few, let's just focus on distemper for a moment. Um, the first few big distemper outbreaks in 99, um, 05 and 08, those pretty much swept through the park. Then, once the population density of wolves in Yellowstone started to decline after that, so there was a high in the number of wolves, you know, right around 180 wolves ish, um, 2007, 2008, that declined and had since been steady at around 100 wolves. So um, during that first kind of period after reintroduction, when the population grew really rapidly and was big, we did see outbreaks that swept across the population. And then subsequent to that, we did start to get patchier exposure, where some packs would be exposed in some years, some packs in other years. We didn't really see these big outbreaks. Um, And then in 2017, that is when we saw um, a distemper outbreak, kind of a partial outbreak, mostly on the Northern Range. And then in 2018, we saw distemper then enter into the interior. So we start to see these mismatch dynamics more recently, and um, this is probably just mainly a result of density. So historically, wolf density was greater on the northern range, and when there are more wolves, there's more aggression between packs, and so that could be a time for transmission. Um, There's probably also higher dispersal rates when these packs are bigger, and so there's a lot of movement of wolves between packs and that could be a source of, again, transmission of those pathogens. Uh, And then in general, where there are more hosts, there tends to be a higher capacity to maintain pathogens for a longer period of time. Um, So on the Northern range where we saw more wolves, that's simply just more individuals to carry these pathogens. Um, Mm. And this gets a little interesting when you consider that wolves live in packs, but just to keep it simple, I think it's mostly a function of density. Whereas in the interior, wolves were more spread out, um, and so we didn't. We don't see uh, these these bigger outbreaks more recently there because wolf packs are just not contacting other packs at such high rates.
2: Mm. Um, there was an article I was reading that uh, this was. I think this was one of your quotes. It was individuals within groups may die, become infected, and recover at different rates, and the group may split into multiple groups or or could combine into one. Why would they, um, what's the sense of why they would split or, or combine into a group?
1: Yeah. So, um, in Yellowstone, especially, but in general, it's bad to be a lone wolf. It is Mm -hmm. not good to be in a small group. Um, you're not going to survive. You're going to get bullied. You might get killed. Um, you might get just get kicked out of the area. And so what you might see are lone wolves or small groups of wolves that join forces because it's better to be in a larger group than it is to be just me and one other wolf wandering around um, also of course, the propensity to not not uh, not breed with anyone you're related to um, so that can also drive wolves to want to join a different group, leave their group um, so these are kind of fission fusion dynamics is is a term for it, um, and that is just yeah wolves breaking apart, dispersal. Um, And joining back together, so forming new packs.
2: So I see. So it's really just a matter of when pack members are dropping off because of pathogens, they're they're joining forces when there's, you know, smaller little subgroups. But why would they, um, is there a reason they would split because of pathogen intrusion?
1: So that's a good question. Um, With wolves, I don't think so. Um, that is something really, really hard to research in the wild. So basically what you'd want to know in a perfect world, um, if you want to know about individual behaviors, at, in terms of, uh, pathogen infections within the group and of the individual, you need to know whether every single individual is infected or not, or immune. Um, and then you need to know when they got infected and you need to know the behavior changes of those individuals. So is that is, I would Possible love to know that. So. <laughs> yeah, I would love to know that question, um, <laughs> the answer to that question. But it's it's been done in very few animals. There have been some experimental studies um, with insects because social insects have these amazing ways to get pathogens basically out of their hives or um, or whatever it is, and and so there have been some studies that have um, experimentally infected insects to see if they would. Leave the, if they would leave their group, if um, individuals in the group would treat them differently. Mm-hmm. And there is some of that that has been documented with social insects. Um, I'm not sure how we would know that answer with uh, yeah. with a wild carnivore.
0: Things to be studied in the future. <laughs> um, so, when, yeah. uh, <laughs> right. Oh, I want to touch on mange because I feel, well, actually, my question before we get to mange is do you, because I've seen it in a couple different places. Because wolves are so social, and because they're in packs, and whether they split off or not, they're always going to get back with each other at some point. Is that what makes them more susceptible to these transmittable pathogens or diseases more so than say cougars or you know things like that? They're they're maybe more of a uh, an individual animal that that sort of you know they'll have their litter and then they they go off and live on their own. Does that seem to be relevant? Uh,
1: that's a that's a great question. Um living in groups or sociality, um, metapopulation dynamics, whatever you want to call it, there's a lot of names for it, but basically when you have a population of animals that are split up into groups, it creates really interesting dynamics of, of the pathogen, um, moving through that population. So sociality can be both a good thing and a bad thing. So let's take the viewpoint of, of your, a singular wolf. Okay. Um, if any of your pack member becomes infected with something while they're out, you know, hunting in their subgroup, they're going to come back and they're going to give it to you, right? So mm-hmm. that that is a con of being in a social group is that mm-hmm. whatever your pack members pick up, you're going to get it probably too. Um, however, on the plus side, if you do get sick, then you have pack members that might help you survive in multiple ways. They provide food. They might provide warmth, which in terms of mange in the winter is very important if you have wolves that can be close to each other and actually emily elmberg who i mentioned earlier she looked at this in particular with mange and found that a lone wolf infected with mange has about 20 times higher risk of dying than that infected wolf in a pack of at least eight wolves Mm. so um being in a group can be really helpful. And we don't know the exact mechanisms, but it's probably because of that providing food, providing warmth, and they're just not stressed, right? You're in a group, you know you're safe, you're in your pack. If you're in a really small pack, you might just be more stressed, which makes you immunocompromised. So these are all pros of of being in a group. Um, Other animals like primates, allogroom, and so they will literally pick ectoparasites off each other. And so that can be a pro of being in a group. Um, but so now we're moving out of the group, move out of the group and and let's, let's take a population level view. Um, being in a population made up of groups can create really interesting dynamics for the pathogen. Like I said, so for example, um, if there is low contact rates between groups, if that pack over there gets infected, but they never touch me, I don't care. It doesn't get to me. So that is also a pro of living in a population like this, because if those groups are never contacting each other, I don't care if they have a pathogen over there, as long as they don't touch me and don't transmit that pathogen to me, you know? So that can be um, a good thing, but it can actually also be a bad thing. So what's interesting here is that having social groups can actually prolong the amount of time that a pathogen is is, is in that population. So, um, This might be confusing so feel free to tell me at the end if there's any more questions but um so if you have these packs in the landscape and their contact rate is just so that there can be an active infection in one pack that then transmits to the other pack Mm -hmm. and then it lasts there for a while transmits to the other pack lasts there Mm -hmm. for a while it can actually move really slowly but stay in the population As opposed to a population without any structure like that, where everyone's just contacting each other at random, there's an outbreak, and then it goes away. So Mm -hmm. actually, um, in some cases, under certain conditions, depending on the pathogen, and typically it's with chronic pathogens, which over time can have very devastating impacts on populations of animals. If you have this structuring, it might actually increase the damage to some extent. Of having that infection because things are moving slowly because they're jumping from group to group. Yeah.
0: So we let let's let's hit on mange. Let let's hit on mange because I know you mentioned it before. So mange, and I was looking at some of the photos in the Yellowstone wolves book, and it seems like such a debilitating. Is it a disease or a pathogen? I know it's a mite. So again, correct me on on what exactly it is classified as but it seems like is mange a little bit more of a devastating disease than distemper or are they one and the same how how would you categorize mange in in the way that it it harms the populations
1: so um this is a great question because they're super different, so it's really exciting for me to talk about it in the most nerdy way. Um, so, so mange is an ectoparasite. Um, pathogen is a bit of a general term, so like I'm fine with you calling it a pathogen. Maybe some vets wouldn't like that, but um, it's a parasite. <laughs> it's an ectoparasite, so it's like a tick. You know, it's these it's these things that you can these parasites that you can see that live on on the outside of the host. Um, so, for people that might not know. Um, Mange is actually the condition caused by a mite called Sarcoptes scabii, and the mite burrows under the host's skin, um, and it digests the tissue, and it reproduces down there, and um, it really inflames that area. And so the host will start to scratch at themselves because of that inflammation that the mite is causing. And so it's actually the scratching that causes mange, the condition mange that we see. Um, And that can lead to hair loss. The hair loss, of course, causes loss of heat. And this is really bad in the winter. Um, Animals are, are losing heat, burning calories. That leads to emaciation. And then those individuals can die of emaciation. They can die of secondary infections, especially bacterial infections on the skin. And mange can infect... Essentially every terrestrial mammal, including humans. Um, but it, it is a little bit specific to the host. So um, a, a mite from a wolf, you know, would not infect you as well as it would infect another wolf, right? Um, but it technically could infect you. So um, mange is, is super interesting. It is really, really variable in terms of how we see it displayed on different individuals. So there have been individuals that got you know, a patch of mange two inches in diameter once and never got it again. And their pack mm. members had it. And they didn't. And mm. that was it. They survived. No big deal. Mm. We saw some individuals, um, like I mentioned, um, 949, that alpha male of the Lamar Canyon pack, he had mange a couple years in a row and it got pretty severe. It is unclear if he just Never cleared it. And so we kind of saw it come back and forth, um, up and down, I should say, rather, um, in terms of his infection severity, or if he did clear it and then got reinfected. um, Some of that's not super clear and then he ended up dying. Um, We see just across the board, we see some individuals get really severe mange and they kick it and they're fine a few months later. um, Tons of variation. So um, we do know a couple of reasons for this variation. This was some work that I was a part of um with Allie DeCandia, who was a PhD student at Princeton. And she looked at um genomics. She did a genomics study um, looking at differences in, in the genomes basically of these wolves and it, how it was associated with their mange severity. And this actually relates to what we were talking about earlier with genetic diversity, but she found that severely mange-infected wolves actually had lower genetic diversity than wolves that experienced mild to moderate infections. And if we date all the way back to reintroduction, we actually see a decline in the frequency of those genes associated with severe mange infections through time, Mm. suggesting that there has been some selection against the wolves that displayed that severe mange infection. So that's super cool. Um, So that could be one reason we see, this high variation, Um, and then those individuals that died or or had severe mange were never able to reproduce, and so they didn't pass on those genes that predisposed them to severe mange, and so therefore, you know, they've lost, they've they've decreased in frequency. So um, that's a pretty cool story about mange, in my opinion. (laughs) Um, But let me go back to your question about the difference between kind of mange and and distemper. Um, well, they're really different. So, distemper, like I've said, is this acute virus where it comes in really quick; it leaves really quick. Um, whereas mange is this more chronic infection. We have seen mange in the population every year since it was first um, identified in two thousand seven. So, in in comparison, um, since two thousand seven, let's take that same time period. We've seen like two distemper outbreaks mm. um, in 08, and then this like seventeen eighteen. Outbreak, so they differ in that respect. If we see mange just at these cro- these constantly low levels in the population, um, we don't see the devastation that we saw at at the introduction of mange into the park in 07. So, like those photos in the book that you're talking about, I mean, horrible to see wolves in that condition. Um, and we don't see that so much now. Could be because of what I mentioned on this genetic research, is that. Um, those wolves that had severe mange, um, they've been selected out to some extent. So uh, I think moving into the future, mange is not that big of a threat um, for the population viability in Yellowstone wolves, but it's not gone away. Um, Whereas distemper comes in and it reduces population size, mostly pups for, you know, a year or two, and then, and then the population bounces back. So I don't know if there's a worse or better, um, necessarily. I think, um, just at a quick glance, distemper looks a lot worse because it, you know, it can kill off all these pups. Um, but in the long run, will mange kill more individuals than distemper? Maybe.
0: So it's all things that, yeah. So it's all, it's all things that you guys are, you know, looking for in the future, which, which is great that we're, we're still trying to figure this out. Um, Let's touch on, before we started the podcast, We were talking about CWD, chronic wasting disease, which has become, I think, more of a prevalent issue in at least the podcast that Stephen and I have done with people It just sort of comes up as a natural talking point. Now that CWD, I believe it started in, Wisconsin, in the Great Lakes region, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, in that area, and it's, it's making its way west. So what have you, give everybody again, just sort of a brief background about what CWD is and how it affects the ungulate population and why it's really such a a topic that needs to be discussed.
1: Sure. Okay. First, we'll back up about uh, CWD and where it was first found. Um, It was first found in Colorado in the 60s.
0: Colorado. Okay.
1: Um, Yeah. So, so. CWD is, is really quite interesting. Um, it was found in the 60s um, in Colorado in elk. Um, and most of the appearances of CWD between that first initial um, discovery in, this, in I believe it was 67, um, between then and about the mid 80s, it was cropping up at mostly farmed deer and farmed elk um, locations. And it was kind of ignored. Um, People didn't really think much of it. Um, and then everything happened with mad cow. Um, and we learned basically, and Scrapie, which is in sheep in the same sort of um, family of these, of these spongiform encephalopathies, which is a huge mouthful. Um, but basically we <laughs> realized, okay, CWD, we shouldn't just be ignoring it. And we've kind of been letting it spread in, in the U.S. Uh, for decades now. Um, and I'm not sure that, you know, in hindsight, of course, hindsight's always 2020. I'm not sure what they would have been able to do at that time, um, especially ones that started infecting wild cervids. So um, CWD, where it has occurred, has been partially because of us moving around elk and deer. So um, many outbreaks have been linked back to humans moving around infected animals, not knowing they were infected. Um, but once it started getting into free-ranging deer and elk, it was kind of a whole different ball game. Um, so I guess we'll we'll start there. Um, Colorado and Wyoming, that's where the biggest outbreak in the West has, has occurred. And it is in more places than that, but that's kind of what we call the endemic zone. So endemic means it's persistent essentially. Um, and then we also see this zone that you mentioned in the Midwest. So Wisconsin, which found CWD and its white-tailed deer in 2001, 2002. Um, and we since now see it in Illinois, Minnesota, Michigan. So we kind of have this Midwest pocket and we have this, this Western pocket. Um, although now they are connecting from from both directions and from North and from South. I mean, they're just, it's spreading basically in all directions. Um, so chronic wasting disease is a prion. Um, it is essentially a, a protein. It's just, we have prions, all of us have prions. They naturally occur. It's just a protein in our body. Most prions are in our central nervous system, but they occur um, in other tissues as well. And um, CWD is strange. It is simply a misfolded protein. It's that prion that naturally occurs just misfolded and it makes it pathogenic. And the folding structure actually makes it more prone to aggregating. So um, basically creating these like hotspot areas and that um, leads to more conversion of the normal protein into this pathogenic protein. So um, the mechanisms are still being worked out about how that happens exactly. But essentially, when a deer elk ingests um, this misfolded protein from another individual or from the environment, then it causes their prions to start to misfold in that same way. Um, so they're strange. <laughs> They're not like a normal virus um, that we're used to hearing about in that sense but they do they are transmitted similarly so CWD is transmitted through saliva urine feces um, those are the main routes but also the environment. Um, this misfolded protein actually is much more stable than the natural occurring form of this protein so it's very difficult to get rid of once it is in the soil and on on the landscape so, That's kind of CWD in a nutshell. It tends to be quite slow moving. So um, you might detect CWD and then it doesn't start increasing rapidly for five to 10 years after first detecting it. Um, It tends to move quite slowly, but it does over time lead to population reductions, declines um, through CWD induced mortality and all, all individuals that get CWD will die. So it infects mule deer white-tailed deer, um, elk, and then there have been a couple moose that have been positive and it also infects uh, reindeer. So the cervid family, that's not to say we, it couldn't infect other families, but um, it is, it is specific to the cervid family. Um, Yeah, so it's a huge problem. It's very hard to eradicate Uh, As you probably have gathered from everything I've said, it, it lasts in the environment. It spreads slowly and individuals don't start displaying symptoms until they've been infected for one, two, maybe even three years. And so you don't know who's sick. If you want to go out and kill the sick ones, you can't tell who's sick until the last few months of life. um, When they have these behavioral changes, they can't really swallow on their, their motor skills diminish. So they end up losing a lot of weight, they end up drooling, um, and then they kind of become confused. I have collaborators that that say when you look, look at the brain of a severely infected and uh, deer or elk, it's like Swiss cheese. And mm. that's why they're called um, the spongiform encephalopathy, because literally it looks the brain looks like a sponge. So um, yeah, I will say on like one bright side of all this, um, there are populations that have of deer and elk that have chronic wasting disease and we don't really see dramatic declines. We see a pretty stable population and they've had chronic wasting disease for decades. So there is, I do don't want to say there is some variation um, among hosts and among locations or for example, where I am in Wisconsin, you know, they've had CWD for at least 20 years, probably longer. And the deer populations are stable, increasing. Um, it might be because it's a bunch of white-tailed deer that are fed on corn and have a bunch of babies and the population mm-hmm. just grows. So um, it, it's not all doom and gloom, but it's not good. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. So a few people mentioned mad cow disease. I think you did a few minutes ago as well. Are the, They're not the same disease renamed in a different animal. They're, uh, they They come from like a common you know, ancestral.
1: Well, they, yeah, they are both prion diseases. So they're Mm. both from, from these, um, they both are basically conversions of natural proteins that we have, but, but yes, um, the, the actual protein, the misfolded protein is different between, between CWD Mm. and between mad cow, but um, they are of the same family.
2: Okay. are, Are there, I mean, is there any studies about the like, historical origin. I mean, this, this, I assume this is like a timeless thing that's been either lying dormant or the conditions are just perfect for it to be a problem right now. Is there any sense of what those conditions are? Like why is this, this thing that I assume didn't just pop up, you know, a few years back? Why, why, what what are the conditions now that are making it the perfect environment for it to just explode like it is?
1: Um, yeah, that's, a great question. Um, I think a lot of people wish they could go back in time and look at those (laughs) conditions. Um, I don't know about the specific origin. I will say that there, there are some ideas about how CWD got to be in live animals. Um, so cervids when they are poor on in their nutrition, so specifically in the winter, um, they've been documented to actually chew on the bones of of other dead cervids. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, bones have a lot of nutrients in them. So, um, and the same thing actually with antlers, um, you might actually see deer or elk that chew on antlers, shed antlers, um, or like I said, bones in, in carcasses. So that is one hypothesis of where this came from was that it was some random spurious thing that happened in a deer, the deer died and then, or elk, whatever. And then Deer and elk went and they chewed on the bones and then it they got infected. That's one idea. <laughs> um and then scrapie, which is in the same family here um, of these of these mad cow disease, prion diseases. Um, so scrapie is the same thing, but it infects sheep. So there is also um an idea that sheep had scrapie. They died, um, or before they died, got in contact with wild elk and deer. So there's that it was derived basically from scrapie as one,
2: Hmm.
1: one other alternative. Um, I don't know.
2: So things are just getting around really. I mean, it's like things are moving in cars. Hunters are moving deer.
1: Oh, that's the thing is that there's a lot of movement. um, There's a lot of movement of animals done by humans. I mean, not even just animal movement Um, and I didn't think I, I don't, I didn't didn't realize the extent of that until I started looking at chronic wasting disease. And then I'm like, oh, we (laughs) translocated elk from here to there to a different country. I mean, South Korea has chronic wasting disease because elk from Canada were moved to South Korea to be on a farm. I mean, so we do, we do weird things.
0: (laughs) So what are some of the things that you, yourself, your colleagues that what, I guess, what are You've outlined some of the problems with, you know, obviously human migration of, of these animals, animal migration. It's just been sitting around and it's, it's around. So what are some of the ideas for the solutions of trying to, I guess, sort of control this disease in a way that, because we were, we were talking a couple of podcasts ago where it's, stands to reason that it's possible that CWD could, get transferred to humans at some point down the line, if it mutate or it gets to that point and humans could become infected and possibly die of this. So is there, what are the steps being taken, I guess, to sort of try and combat this in multiple different ways?
2: Yeah, man, I was waiting to use this word zoonotic that Mike Phillips taught us last time and now you ruined it. Sorry. <laughs> you got ahead of me, dude. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So, I mean, our, our best way to manage wild animals is through harvest, is through hunting. Um, so that is the by far the number one way that, that CWD has been managed. I put manage in quotes because uh, we're not very good at managing uh, ungulates, <laughs> cervids, uh, to control for, for CWD so far. Um, but that is the major way um, that, that state agencies, um, are trying to control chronic wasting disease is through harvest. Um, there was a, uh, a, a group of reindeer in Norway that got infected with chronic wasting disease and they actually killed all of them. was so over 200 individuals, wow. they're like, listen, we've seen what's happened in the U S and we know that if you just remove, um, a certain proportion, it doesn't go away and they killed them all. And it actually lasted for a few years. They were CWD free and then they Mm. just detected chronic wasting disease again in Norway. Mm. So um, it it somehow, it got to other species or other groups. Um, So eradication, that's one example of eradication. Hasn't really worked. Um, We've tried uh, many things, test and call. So go around and test a bunch of individuals, see who's positive, kill them. Um, If they're negative, release them again. Uh, We tried decreasing density. So just, you know, have tons of hunting in these areas with CWD and hope that reduced density will reduce transmission. Um, Many, many things, many approaches through hunting. Um, That is really the only management we've had in the Jackson area where the Jackson Hole area, Wyoming, um, where there are feed grounds, there are over 20 elk feed grounds um, in that area. Um, It has been called upon, people have been calling upon the agency basically to um, fish and game to to disband those feed grounds. And that would be not necessarily a form of management, but um, kind of uh, this preventative measure because that is where elk, and deer, congregate in the winter. And so it would be a great place for transmission where you have these huge aggregations of cervids that we know have CWD. Um, that mm-hmm. has yet to happen, um, if it will ever happen. But that is one tactic that is, I'm not sure if it's really being considered by Wyoming, but um, people definitely want Wyoming to consider it. Um, so that's that's one other kind of management. And then besides that, I mean, predators is really what people have, have been hoping um will kind of be a solution. Um in areas of Colorado where there has been CWD for decades um, and CWD infected deer that have lived sympatrically with cougars, for example, we have not seen big declines in in CWD, even though cougars have very high kill rates on those deer. And actually there's evidence that cougars prefer CWD infected mule deer and kill mm-hmm. them at a higher rate. Um, and we still don't see a huge curtailing of the disease in, in those areas.
2: I think I heard of a some, uh, actually, John, I think it was Staten Island near where, you know, sort of in between where we were from, but that they were trying to deer vasectomy program. I wonder if that, I don't know how that works or how that becomes efficient, but Does not sound efficient. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of mountain lions and that their kill rates are high, but they're not really putting a dent in it how would uh how would reintroducing wolves be different and also um while you answer that to compare you know I guess three predators, lions, wolves, and us. Why is the efficacy not incredibly high is it is it simply because we we aren't we don't have the perception of an apex predator to we don't we don't have the the fine tuned eye to see. A, a compromised animal. And if they're not showing symptoms for a few years, like outward symptoms, symptoms that we can see, I don't know how we would be, we would be putting a real dent in the numbers.
1: Um, yeah. I, I'm really glad you included humans in there as, as predators because let it be known that humans are the biggest predators on serve of cervids, um, you know, in the United yeah. States, hands yeah. down. Yeah. Um, so I guess we can start, let's start there. Um, I don't even think it's so much of a perception of, of humans can't detect CWD infected individuals. That is, of course, a part of it. But I think the bigger question is, why would they want to? Why would you want to kill a CWD infected deer? You if you're either. out hunting. Yeah, if you're I mean, you can. You have I the choice to eat it. Yeah, I guess um, but yeah, I mean, I would probably recommend against it. Um I wouldn't, I don't want to say that there's a large risk of, of zoonoses, um, to use your word again. I don't know. Ah,
2: she extended the word. Now we've got a new, I got to add that one to the list. All right. I'll I don't want to say next. there's oh, a
1: yeah. huge risk of that. There, there's not a huge risk, but it, the risk is not zero. Right. So let's yeah. just say that it's not, it's not zero. And if you know, um, there are no other options, but to die once you become infected with this, like, I don't <laughs> think you want to take that risk. So, yeah. um, so why would you want to do, if you are out hunting, Um, In the Midwest, where let's say, you know, CWD has been around for decades and you see a deer with twitches acting strange, seems like it doesn't really know you're there, doesn't really care you're there. Why Mm -hmm. would that be the deer you shoot? I mean, (laughs) it it just wouldn't be. Um, You would probably call your local wildlife agency and say, I'm at X and X location and uh, we got some deer that seem like they might have CWD. And then you'd probably leave and not want to hunt in that area. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's actually a little bit of of my postdoc is what I'm going to be looking at is is the efficacy of of harvest and different types of management for controlling CWD. Um, I don't think we know how effective it has been. I can tell Mm -hmm. you it's not been very effective in certain areas. Um, But on a grand scale of of all these different states and all these different types of management and harvest regimes and sharpshooting programs and all this, I don't know how effective it's been um but in certain areas it certainly has not been effective if that makes sense so yeah. um I think it remains to be seen how useful harvest um is at at controlling reducing and eradicating CWD um but it certainly hasn't been great so far um so in terms of cougars and wolves I think that they both are are amazing predators in their own respect. Cougars can have much higher per capita kill rates than wolves. Um, they select typically more for body size than they do for condition. Mm. But you know, if a cougar is perched up somewhere watching a group of deer walk by, and one of those deer is moving worse than the others and is a bit slower than the others, it yeah. why would it not take that one? Right? It's yeah. the easy meal. Right. So That's of risky. course they. They are selective to some extent for sure. Um, but of course, out of these three, the wolves are the most most selective in terms of body condition. And I think that Mike Phillips did a beautiful job of, of describing describing this and describing wolf predation in general. Um, but as someone you know who's worked in Yellowstone for years, when you are watching wolves hunt, um, you know, they run out of group and they make that group of elk a smaller group of elk. And then they, from that smaller group, they're picking out which individual they want. And, um, it's going to be the old, the young and the sick for the most part. I mean, unless it is, unless there are environmental conditions, like really deep snow, when, in which case they can take a really healthy bull elk and, and they will, um, those sorts of things can moderate, um, what wolves are selecting for. But in general, we know that most of the year they're taking either young um, or they're taking old females. And then there's that period in late winter when the bulls are really depleted from growing their antlers and from going through the breeding season and everything. And um, that is when they will take, take bulls. Um, So kind of that February, March, and that's when there's typically deep snow. Um, So there are some of these exceptions, but um, in general, it is hard to kill things and they want to make it as easy as possible on them. Um, I will say though, one issue with chronic wasting disease, and I I don't think in most places that have chronic wasting disease endemically, um, we are not going to say, see the same dynamics as we would with wolves in Yellowstone. So I want to go back to what I brought up earlier about this environmental reservoir. So, In areas where CWD has been around for a long time, these prions exist on the landscape. They exist in the soil, and there's some evidence that they can actually, the prions can be taken up by plants, which is really spooky to think about, um, actually. So animals are coming in um, to these areas, let's say mineral licks or um, agricultural fields or whatever it is where animals have aggregated over time, right, through time, they are urinating, defecating, and they're just depositing all these prions in the environment, um, prions might be active there for decades. Uh, and, and that's serious. Like there, there, there's been a few studies on this where prions, active prions have been detected like almost two decades after they were deposited. So um, that, makes the, that makes the disease system in somewhere like Colorado very different and the Midwest, very different from a Yellowstone where we don't have that environmental reservoir. So the transmission of chronic wasting disease is going to be happening directly from elk to elk, deer to deer for the most part. And so this is where I think predators could have the biggest impact because if they are able to remove those infections as they're coming in to the Yellowstone region, then I think that's the best bet of kind of keeping chronic wasting disease at bay. I don't think it's going to be indefinite. Um, We're going to have some cases in the park. That's just the reality. We probably already do monitoring is not very good in the park for CWD. It's just, it's very difficult to do. Um, Very expensive and CWD in the early stages is very hard to detect. If you have a prevalence of like 2%, gonna to have to sample a few hundred animals to even get that two percent with confidence. So um yeah I, I think that in Colorado to go back to your question I'm not sure um I don't want to say anything really with confidence do I think that wolves will be able to remove infected CWD infected individuals yes select for them yes especially if they're symptomatic no question there's evidence that cougars do it there's been Um, two or three publications that show that. So cougars select for them as well. Um, So in this kind of new environment where the only transmission is direct, there's a better shot. Whereas if deer and elk are picking it up from the environment around them, um, I'm not sure that predators will be able to keep up, if that makes sense. yeah, it it will be very interesting to see <laughs> what yeah. happens. I'm, I'm very yeah. interested to see what happens with CWD in in Colorado and in the Yellowstone ecosystem.
0: Yeah, it just seems like everything you're talking about. It sounds like almost a nuclear fallout with a disease. Because if things can linger that long in the environment, you're just sort of waiting for it to get picked up. So, do you think going forward, then? I guess both in your you're in your postdoctorate now, and then in any of the research that's going on, do you, are you guys going to be looking more on the, to see if this, because of the prop that was passed in Colorado and the reintroduction happening, hopefully in the next couple of years at how, like you say, this predator study could help at least, like you say, put this at bay. Um, and will that sort of go into your, your research a little bit more because this is almost like a fresh, it, it's, it's Yellowstone sort of 2.0, but in a different environment where the management might not be there.
1: So what I think is important, um, Colorado does have monitoring programs in place. Um, What I think is important, let's say for Yellowstone, is just to get monitoring programs in place, up and running. It's very challenging um, to study an invasion uh, a pathogen invasion like this, um, especially like I mentioned, CWD is slow moving and prevalence can be low for a long time before it really takes off. So monitoring and being able to detect those changes as they happen, I think is really important. Um, Colorado already has a lot of those those programs in place. Um, I mean, I'm not involved in, in the wolf research happening in, in Colorado, so I can't speak on exactly... Um, what they're doing. I can tell you a little bit about what's happening in Yellowstone, um, which is attempting to get samples from um mainly elk that are killed by, by predators. Um, I say mainly elk because deer are typically completely consumed. And what you really want, um, the money sample is called the Obex, and it is the brainstem essentially, and that is like the gold standard for testing for CWD. So when we go out in um, Yellowstone, when technicians go out in Yellowstone to, not we anymore, but um, <laughs> as of this year, but um, when technicians go out in Yellowstone, they go to these um, carcasses, they go to where predators have, have killed things, um, particularly wolves and cougars, and hopefully take samples to be tested for chronic wasting disease. Um, going back a little bit to how, how it's challenging to study, so in a perfect world again, to know about the dynamics of the predator, the prey and the disease, you would want to know background prevalence. So you'd want to know just generally um, how many elk let's say are infected and you'd want that broken down by age and sex class. So you'd want a bunch of samples from males, females um, throughout their life. And you'd want to know what what the structure of the disease looks like in terms of that host population. And then you want to know what the predators are killing. So that's where it becomes even more. So as if that wasn't challenging enough, um, add on the predators and you want to know what they're killing, how often um, you want to know. So their kill rates, you want to know their selection. um, And these are really challenging. And so that would be perfect to know that. And then there is um, one study that's been done that showed that prions can actually pass through the gut of a coyote. So you'd again, in a perfect world, want to be tracking those wolves that ate, that CWD-infected elk for a while um, and testing their feces. So, I mean, this isn't. This is just not all going to happen, right? Um, so, the state of Montana has has a monitoring program for CWD that's quite good, um, but in the park, we're we're just limited in in what can be done in terms of biological samples because predators and scavengers will eat everything. Um, so, I I just advocate for monitoring. I mean, we just need to know when it's coming in. We need to know what the predators are killing, which we already do, but we need to know that with respect to CWD status, which is kind of a whole different beast.
2: Currently what state is being impacted by CWD at the highest rate?
1: Um, in the Midwest, that would be Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. I am not sure if it's Cal- um, Colorado or Wyoming. Um I'm, I want to say Colorado, but I'm not positive on that.
2: Hmm. Yeah. I'm just wondering if there's any correlation to states that have very few predators. I mean, I assume Colorado has a decent amount of mountain lions, but, uh, well, I guess, I don't know, are are black bears even a substantial threat to small ungulates?
1: Oh, for sure. Especially for for deer fawns. Yeah, definitely mm-hmm. for okay. deer fawns. So, so I guess we should also say, um, you know, moving away from wolves and cougars specifically, Um, Yellowstone is also, I think, a great candidate for kind of keeping CWD at bay because they have all of these predators and scavengers. When something dies out there, it is cleaned up so quickly. Um, so this is kind of an example I like to I like to um to tell people about. So I get this question of well, can it pass through the digestive tract of the predator? So, like I just mentioned, there is um, been one study that looked at this where coyotes were basically fed CWD-infected meat. They mm-hmm. ate it, and it um, it was detected in their feces for like two or three days um, post consumption. So, so what you'll get, and this has been an argument used in Colorado, which is that well, wolves are going to spread it. So right. they'll eat CWD-infected individuals. They'll go on the landscape, and they'll they can move so much in a day that they'll spread it. Okay, right. so that's been an argument. So let's take an example of of um, an elk that elk can typically live about two years um, or more after, after contracting CWD before they end up actually dying. So let's say that an elk is killed when it is, when it's had CWD for six months. Okay. So in that beginning, it's killed by wolves, whatever in Yellowstone. Um, Mm -hmm. So it has had only six months to potentially transmit that infection onto others and to shed the prion out um, in the environment through, through its urine, um, basically. But in the beginning parts of the infection, they're actually not that infectious. So they're not shedding a lot of these prions. They shed the most prions at the later stages when they're really symptomatic. That's when they are really sick, they have the most prions in their body and that's when they are, are shedding, trans, able to transmit the most. So let's say a wolf picks up on, on some subtle cue that us as humans cannot detect, mm-hmm. kills this elk at six months. Um, so it's had those six months to maybe transmit a little bit. And then worst case scenario, the wolves eat that elk and their poop has prions for the next two days. Okay. Worst case scenario. And then let's even say a couple of scavengers go in there, some bears, whatever. They do the same thing. It's in, mm-hmm. their, it's in their poop for another day. Okay. Now compare that to a world without predators, especially wolves as a focus here, but then that elk goes on for another year and a half or more, right. shedding in the environment, transmitting to other individuals, and they're reaching their infectious peak, which is towards the end of their infection. Mm-hmm. So that's what I, I just, right. you know, think of it that I way see. as like, what's <laughs> well, it's going to be worse. It's in their poop for two days or, uh, or they're transmitting for another year or more i mean that is a huge difference in the transmission potential in those two situations right
2: so it's not just about yeah. it's not just about whether they select for them or not it's like it's beneficial to for them to die early i mean really
1: if if you have an infected elk or deer um the shorter its lifespan is while it's infected then the better, the better it is to get rid of that infection right because wow. the fewer transmission events that can occur
0: makes sense I mean, we we've heard it, you know, now multiple podcasts in a row of of how we can use predators as an assist to humans as a predator, also to, you know, again try and do the best we can to manage what's going on. Um, Stephen, do you have anything else before I ask Ellen
2: our last question? The, or final you, question. Dun, dun, dun. the final question. Yeah. Um. No, I do have a funny question actually. That that came up while Go you ahead. were. This whole time, really, I've just been thinking about it. Are there are there any uh, is there any go to research um, that focuses on the possible benefits of disease in wild animals, or is the discovery of a handful of diseases affecting one species or multiple species like this really a sign of an imbalance um, or some other micro problem in wild places?
1: Um, that is a great question. So I guess we can start with. Um, I don't want to necessarily use CWD as an exact as an example, but let's just start with that. Um, so let's say you know, for the predators in Yellowstone with with CWD at its boundaries, it could provide um, basically an easy food source for them. And I'm not just talking about CWD. I just mean any kind of pathogen that creates symptoms like this that impede mobility and make them an easy target for predators. so um if if there are pathogens kept at low levels in prey, that make them easier to eat for the predator, um, that can be, that can be beneficial for the predator and for the prey population because you're getting rid of those highly infectious individuals. And so there, there can be a balance, um, in that way actually. And I guess the second part to your question, um, I would say is that there are a lot of really interesting parasites that have Um, many parts of their life cycle that can actually, they live in multiple trophic levels. So um, we see this, let's say for intestinal parasites, we see this even in Yellowstone, um, where elk have some sort of um, intestinal parasite, like echinococcus, um, and it gets in their tissue, and then what happens is the wolves consume that tissue, and then um, they poop out the eggs basically into the environment, the parasite eggs, And then um, while elk graze, they pick up those eggs and the life cycle restarts. So Mm. that is a a simple example, but there are some really complex examples like with trematodes um, that, which are another type of parasite that they actually live in three trophic levels and they require many hosts to survive. And so when you go out and you find parasites that have these complex life cycles, you actually know that the environment then has all those trophic levels and you know uh, that everything is is kind of operating properly, that you have um, that, you know, this level, the first level had the infection, the second level picked it up, the third level picked it up and it restarted. And so, um, yeah, this is kind of a concept that um, that if you go out and you can find these different types of parasites that it might actually tell you something about the host populations and the host populations might be harder to study. So. Mm-hmm. You find the parasite, um, you might be able to find the parasite. Let's. Some of these are aquatic. If you just take some buckets of water and sand and you detect them, <laughs> then you're like, okay, then I know these other species must be here. Um, and so there are some ways to look at, look at infections like that. Not all infections are bad. Everybody has infections. You have bacteria in you right now. You know, um, uh, CWD is kind of what we're focused on at the moment, but in 30 years, it'll be something else. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, maybe not for CWD. It might still be CWD <laughs> in 30 years, actually. Yeah.
2: But yeah, the way you're describing some of the transmission of some of them, it, it, it was reminding me of, I don't know, you, you know, when people tell stories about how squirrels are hiding nuts and they're forgetting 70 some percent of them. So that's planting trees. Birds are picking up seeds, right, picking up yeah. seeds et cetera. There's such an such a spider web of things that are happening it's almost like Mother Nature made so many layers so that it could never be stopped. And these pathogens and the transmission of them, they just remind me of that idea. And so I'm like, man, there's got to be a silver lining to this. I, I don't know. I guess I always just lean on the side of whatever's happening out there constantly that can't be fixed is is Mother Nature's intentional design.
1: Yeah, I will say it's not, not the case for all. I don't want to say that all you know, all pathogens are great,
2: but yeah, of course, but
1: yeah,
2: no,
0: it's great. No. And I agree with Steven. I think it's, it's, I think it gives us more optimism in the fact that, you know, mother nature and the earth itself can basically heal itself and continue to function in a way, even though we as humans interfere more so than we should, it just goes to show that there are these places where things can exist and, and just keep functioning as if nothing's going on. So the last thing that we'll ask you before we let you go is when you hear the word wolf, what is something that comes to your mind? Um,
1: that is tough. I think wolf can symbolize so many things for so many different people. Um, in my mind, and especially in, with respect to infectious diseases, um, I would say adaptive. Wolves are incredibly adaptive. They can live in so many different environments, um, proximities to people. They can eat so many different prey species, so many different types of things. And in terms of diseases, um, they tend to tend to be quite resilient to a lot of things. Um, and yeah, so I guess I would, I would say adaptive. Mm.
2: Love it. We never so- get the same one twice. I know, we've, we've
0: been doing this for a while now. And you, so it
1: was
0: a new yeah. one, nice. A <laughs> new one, yeah. So Ellen, please tell everybody, if you have a social media handle where they can follow you, maybe on Instagram or something, but more importantly too, where they can uh, check out some of the works that you've published, any books, publications, websites, things like that. Uh, please tell everybody where they can look at the work that you're doing Uh, in terms of infectious
2: diseases and congrats on the uh, ny times i saw that on your twitter just now
1: yeah thanks (laughs) that was pretty cool yeah so twitter uh (laughs) you can follow me on on twitter um it's ellen e brandell and um you know you'll get anything from like my dog to publications so um just (laughs) that's what you'll get on my twitter (laughs) but um and then, yeah, my website, um, which is lnebrandel.weebly.com, And I post research updates there and um, and that I have my full CV. So you can find my publications um, and more information just about me. Uh, and then I guess I'll just plug the Yellowstone Wolf book that you mentioned um, that I, I was author on um, one of the chapters. Well, yeah, lead author on chapter nine and also um, an author on chapter six in there as well. Um, So that book was many many years in the making, and it's absolutely beautiful. And I think it's a great resource for anyone that has an interest in in learning about wolves and ecology. Because it's not it's not meant for the scientists, right? It's just meant for the interested audience. So, uh, yeah, I'll give a I'll give a shout out to the book.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great, that's great. Yeah, everybody, please go go check out Ellen's work. It's it's fascinating. It's in depth. If you you know, obviously, if you've gone through the podcast, you know, she's a wealth of knowledge. Again, the book is Yellowstone Wolves Science and Discovery in the World's First National Park. You can find that on Amazon. I'm sure Barnes and Noble, everywhere else you can find it. Ellen, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was so great to meet you. And uh, yeah, continued success in all of your work and everything that you're doing. This is great. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah Thank, thank you, you guys
1: for having me. And um, thanks for,
0: Absolutely.
1: thanks for, um, you know, showing People hopefully sharing uh, good science and information about wolves and wild animals.
2: Yeah, it's all you.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much. Howls to everybody out there. And Stephen and I will talk to you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Looking to support Wolf Connection or sponsor one of the wolves in our pack? Just go to wolfconnection.org, click on the Donate tab, and find out more information.